The introduction to this letter, and please don't ever forget that, this is a letter written by one individual to another, a sacred text inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, but it is a letter written from one individual to some dear saints who had been under some extreme persecution, facing great difficulties and trials. The very beginning of this letter that Peter writes to these individuals, and they are named in these various places, identifies him as the sender. It also identifies the dispersed Jewish believers as the recipients of this letter. And then lastly, in that introduction, he writes his greeting in verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And of course, there we would be blind if we did not see in verse 2 that statement of the glorious work of the triune God in granting salvation. We are chosen by the Father, we have been purchased by the Son, and we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, all represented there in the Trinity uh, expressed in that verse. When you get to verses 3 and 4, we see this statement about our great salvation. Uh, Peter's purpose in writing this letter is to draw the attention of these suffering saints away from their worldly concerns and on to the God of their salvation. In other words, his purpose is to help them to stand strong not looking at their own situations or looking inwardly, but looking upwardly at God. In fact, if you would, I invite you to turn to chapter 5 of this first epistle of Peter and look at verse 12, and I think you will find there a purpose statement for this entire epistle. He identifies this individual, Silvanus, who most likely is that Emanuensis who wrote the letter for Paul, who is dictating this under direction of the Spirit of God. He says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regarded him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God And you want to highlight these last words here, stand firm in it. And so you have there at the end of this epistle this great purpose statement for his writing to these believers. And he is discussing very first the great salvation that we have in God. In fact, the first 12 verses of this epistle are basically all theological. There's not, according to my count, there is not one imperative in those 12 verses They are all indicative statements describing who God is, what he has done. The angelic host, as they look upon this in wonder, the statements regarding the Old Testament saints and their confusion at times as to what they were actually writing about Christ and his great salvation, all indicative statements, theological statements, preparing us for verse 13 where he says, therefore, because of all of this, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace. And you can continue the words. And then going on down further down to verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. Look at verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. So there are plenty of imperatives, but they all come after verse 12 because we all know that our belief dictates our behavior. And so it all depends on what we know that will decide what we do. 
Verses three and four, again, describing God and his great salvation, we see, first of all, the architect by whom our salvation was designed, that is, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see, secondly, the source from which that salvation flows, and it is according to his great mercy. And I don't intend this, even this morning, this afternoon, I'll decide what time of day it is in a minute. Uh, in our church, it's either the morning or the evening. <laughs> so, uh, getting reduced to the afternoon is a little tough. We forget, folks, we forget, and, this is, and again, this is just an aside, that our salvation flows from mercy. There is nothing you could do to gain that salvation. There's nothing you did to earn that. There's, and there's nothing you can do to release yourself from that. It is all of God from beginning to end. It is from his mercy. We are like, some of you remember this summer, those, those children in Thailand, I think it was Thailand, there was um, soccer players and they were trapped in a cave. They could not get out. The news was very bad for them. It took a long time to get those children out and their coach. And it took the life of another individual, I believe. There was no hope for them unless somebody else stepped in and mercifully brought them out. This is our salvation, folks. This is our salvation. Nothing you've done. It's all of his mercy. That's the source. Verse number three, the pathway by which our salvation is obtained, and that is, it says, he has caused us to be born again. Again, you didn't bring about your physical birth, nor did you bring about your spiritual birth. Your spiritual birth was caused by God. He brought that to you. He caused us to be born again. And then you have the features uh, by which our salvation is described. It says, in a living hope, in verse 4, it's called an imperishable inheritance. Then in verse 5, we see the guardedness of our salvation in these last times. Look at verse 5. It says, who, that's referring to the saints, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We'll talk a little bit more about that faith in verse 5 when we get to verse 7. But note, please, it is that we are by God's power being guarded in this life. Our salvation rests quiet and easy in glory. Our inheritance is resting quiet and easy in heaven. We who are awaiting that glorious inheritance, not so much in this earth. We are ships on a sea and we are tossed, we are blown, we are torn, we are ripped, we are assailed we fight sin every moment of every day. We fight an adversary who hates us and will do everything he can to destroy us. And he will, just as Peter was told by the Lord Jesus, he said, Satan has desired to have you, that he can sift you like wheat. And it's as though that hungry lion, as he is described in this book of 1 Peter, has taken Peter and he has just taken him in his jaw and shook him and shook him. This is, this is what we fight every day. And so it's no wonder that Paul, Peter says here in verse 5, we are, by God's power, being guarded through faith for a salvation 
He's the one who's protecting us. He puts the hedge around us. He keeps us from being like that wild horse that will just run where it wants to go with the left without a rein. And he puts hedges and protects and he guards. And it's a wonderful thing. Our days are filled with corruptions. Our days are filled with evils, assaults, turmoils, trials, all manner of difficulty and temptation. But we're being guarded through all of that. So God provides the ultimate instrumentality of our preservation. What is his instrument in our preservation? Peter says in verse 5, who by God's power. It is God's power. You take no credit. It is God's power. And then God also provides the means by which we lay hold of our preservation. He's the one by his power who preserves. How do we lay hold of that? It is by faith, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then in verse 6, we arrive here where we are given the first mention of any trials. It's in verse 6. It says, in this you rejoice. What is the this? What is it in this you rejoice? Verses 1 through 5. That glorious salvation which is ours in Christ Jesus, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter is well aware that the readers were experiencing these two contrary emotions in all of this. They were rejoicing in the reality of their eternal spiritual uh, inheritance, but they were also in grief in the heaviness of their current trials and their afflictions. I'm looking out into the faces of a congregation. I see some of you with, with white in your hair, uh, some of you who are like I am, and if you had it, it would be white. You've walked with the Lord a number of years. You know what that's like. You know what it's like to rejoice, to have the joy of God in your heart even through trying, trying times. You know that. You know what that's like. And so does Peter. And he writes it here in verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He shows us the necessity of these trials. They are necessary. And time forbids me to go into all the details regarding why trials are necessary. And then the alleviation of trials, thirdly, it says in order to soften or alleviate the reality of suffering, Peter reminds them of certain things regarding trials. He says, for one thing he says, he says they're relatively insignificant. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, in this you rejoice. Draw your attention to the work of God and the person of God. Draw your attention to the triune work of God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in granting and in architecting Uh, in designing our great salvation from which we cannot be taken. In this you rejoice. He says that trials are useful. There is spiritual profit. Trials are brief, he says in verse 6. In this rejoice, though now for a little while. It's just a little while. Just a little while. And then finally he talks about the limitations of these trials. Our trials and afflictions may be many and varied, but they're limited but our joy is not limited. There's no, there's no limit on the joy that we have, but our trials, on the other hand, are limited. There's a certain limited measure of our trials, but there is no measure of our joy. Our afflictions, which bring us heaviness, are merely a transitory touch of pain. 
and I have seen it illustrated and I have heard it said many, many times, that if we just consider our lives, it doesn't matter how long we live, if we get our three score and 10, if because of strength we get our three score and 10 plus 10, uh, three, 10 more, or if because we've eaten enough oat bran and we've done enough miles on our, on our devices and made, did our steps, we might get an extra 10 or 20. It doesn't matter how long. And what if we spent every day of that in sorrow and turmoil and trial and difficulty? What does it compare to the glory of eternity with Christ apart from these frailties of our human flesh? It means nothing. It means nothing. Now, what I want to do in the moments that we have remaining, and I'm not sure how many of those are. I'm guessing an approximate number. I want to focus on verse 7. Verse 7. And in order to get that context, let's go back to verse 6, and then we'll look at verse 7, and this will be our lesson for this morning. First Peter, again, verse 6, chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What I want to preach to you on this afternoon is the tested genuineness of your faith. Is your faith real? Is it true? Is it genuine? Echoing the words of Jesus who says, let a man, through the, through the word of God, through Paul, let a man examine himself and see whether or not he is in the faith. Is our faith genuine? Those words that begin the verse in my version, so that, translate a Greek expression. It's one Greek word. We call it the henna, henna clause. It's a purpose clause. This denotes purpose here. So verse 7 is a purpose clause that explains the purpose for the trials mentioned in verse 6. You go back to verse 6, and it tells us that in this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, you see, so you've been grieved with these trials, so that. Right, that exp- now you've got a purpose for this. What's the reason for this? What's the purpose? This verse gives one of the primary purposes for trials. And I'm not suggesting that this is the only purpose. I'm just suggesting that Peter highlights it here in verse 7 as a, as a significant purpose for trials and difficulties because trials prove whether or not our faith is genuine. Trials are sent to reveal what is on the inside. Trials expose us. They show what's really there. Trials show us and they show others whether or not our faith is real. Okay. So just imagine yourself. I mean, your life is, your life is just rocking along fine. Um, you've, got, you've got significant work to do. You've got purpose. You've got money in the bank. You've got transportation. Everything is going well until all of a sudden there's an edict from the king that says you will bow down to this image or you will die. Now, where's your faith? 
It's exposed. And how you respond to those tests reveal what's on the inside. They expose you. They lay us bare before God as to whether or not we are going to obey. The test is designed to reveal the genuineness of faith. It exposes us. In verse 7, the Holy Spirit, I believe, through Peter's pen, is seeking to lay out at least two very important points. And so our lesson this afternoon is very easy to follow. There are two main headings, and under each main heading, there are two subheadings. Easy to follow. The first first heading is the superior value of faith. That's the first thing he he highlights is the superior value of faith. And not really just faith, but genuine faith, real faith, faith that's been tested and proven to be genuine, the superior value of faith. And then second, the main heading, the second main heading is this, the usefulness of trials in relation to faith. Okay, so let's take that first one, the superior value of faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by your trials, so that the tested genuineness those two English words translate one word in the original, dokimion, which simply just refers to something that's been tested and proved, that it is genuine. It is the genuine article. It's been documented. Some of you, we're coming to the close of the year, and you have to put all your documents together to file your taxes starting January, February, March, or if you're like others, uh, you wait till the 14th of April. And you're going to tell how much you made and how much you spent and how much you saved and how much you gave away. And the governmental officials are going to want something from you if you're ever audited. They're going to want documentation. They're going to want proof. Okay, proof. In fact, I, believe, I don't have the NSV in front of me, but I believe the, the NASB says proof, the proven genuineness of your faith. And that's, that's what's going on here. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. So it's not just that your, your faith is genuine, but that faith has been tested. You've been put through that fire, as it were, and to find out whether or not that that's real, what you possess. So the tested genuineness of your faith, and here's the, here's the superior value of your faith over gold. More precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. It's the same word, by the way. It's not the same exact word. It's from the same root family, uh, that gold is tested, your faith is tested. And so it's the same root family in that original word. These things may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Please note that the genuine faith is compared to pure gold, and it is more precious than that gold. It's because faith is of more value then we'll talk a little bit about that word in a minute. Comparing faith to gold is really a, a fitting illustration because both of them have value. He's not saying gold doesn't have value. Okay? We all know gold has value. You, you know. Both are tested. Gold is tested by fire, and faith is tested by trials. So the first thing we're seeing is the superior value of gold. And under that, we want to look at it in two subheadings. First of all, the relative value of gold. Gold does have value. Faith is compared to gold. The value of gold is very real. In the opinions of worldly men, it is of greater value than human virtue. We wouldn't think that, would we? Or we wouldn't. But I guarantee you that there are people 
who hold gold of great higher value than any virtue, and they will break any virtue to get more gold and more power and more prestige and the honor that that gold holds. They will hazard their lives. They will hazard the lives of others in the pursuit of gold. Not only do they esteem gold highly, they make it the standard of how they esteem others. The more gold a man has, the more highly he's esteemed in the eyes of godless humanity. We use gold in our language to describe things of value all the time, don't we? Uh, We talk about a favored sibling as what? That's the golden child, right? This is the golden child. Uh, We talk about a notable era in history as what? That's the golden age. It could be the golden age of TV, the golden age of, you know, of whatever, of sports. Um, it's one of the highest standards of comparison. We call it the gold standard. This is the gold standard, right? I think now we're coining it, because that has gotten so old, now it's platinum and, you know, whatever, diamonds, and it's, it's got to be bigger than that. Uh, we describe even the New Jerusalem in earthly language as being made of what? Pure gold. Now, I, I don't know if it's pure gold, but the language there that John uses to describe something that is of great worth uses the language of gold. Uh, we talk about Olympic winners when they win what? They win the gold medal. All right. uh, we talk about retirees, and maybe this is dating myself. I don't think they do that much anymore, but it used to be in years ago that your company would give you a gold watch you know, when you're retiring. But again, gold has value. We're not saying that gold is not valuable. Gold has a relative value, but it's less valuable than your faith. So we see the relative value of gold, but secondly, we see the greater value of the genuineness of your faith. Verse 7 again, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found into these items. This is comparison between faith and gold. Faith is not only as precious as gold, it is more precious. That, again, that those two English words translate a Greek word, which is actually a compound word, which with, we, have the, we would say the prefix would be poly, which means many or much, and then the, and then the root word is time, which refers to value. More value. And that word value, that word there in the Greek, it's not just uh, a stated value, although it, it can be, but it's also the value that you would place on something that is extremely precious to you. Something that you might hold very valuable. You wouldn't sell it for a million dollars. You would keep that. And no one could offer you enough money for it, although it may be worthless to another individual. That's this word, Timé. It is more valuable. Your, the tested genuineness of your faith is more valuable than gold that perishes. Faith is of greater value for three reasons. Here's what, here's what it is. First of all, faith is of greater value because of its origin. Where does it come from? Gold comes from strenuous work from deep in the ground. Faith is a precious gift given from heaven above. Faith is one of those two necessary, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word theologically and it's not coming to my mind, but these are necessary for salvation. In order for someone to be saved, a person has to turn in repentance and faith. Those two are necessary. Are those things that you work up? 
Are those things that a dead man can bring to himself and a dead man can open up his blind, dead eyes and look at Jesus and repent of his sins? No. These are things that are granted by God. God grants to us repentance. He grants to us faith. This is why it is so much more precious because it's a gift from God's mercy to us. He gives us these things that we do not deserve and he withholds those things that we do. It's a great, great value, that faith, more so than gold where you have to dig and work and sweat and toil uh, to get it. Uh, Secondly, faith is not only of greater value because of its origin, it's also of greater value because of its nature. Gold is material. Gold is worldly. Gold is impure. It must be heated to remove the impurities. Faith is immaterial. Faith is spiritual. Faith is pure. It is of greater value than gold that perishes. Thirdly, faith is of greater value not simply because of its origin and its nature, but because of its endurance. Gold perishes. No matter how much it is purified in the fire, faith is imperishable. Faith abides. Gold does not abide. Faith abides. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, now abides faith, hope, and love. Faith abides. And it is of greater value than any gold. We usually set great uh, amounts of determination to get that gold because it will, it will ease our situation, right? Um, let, me, let me take you to a passage. Keep your thumb here in 1 Peter. We will return. But just a quick story in Acts. And I, I think you're, you may already know where I'm going with this. But Acts Chapter 3, and I love this story. Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So we can just substitute the word gold. All right, that's what he needs. He needs silver or gold. He needs alms because of his condition. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. What does he want? What does he think is going to solve his problem? Gold. He thinks gold is going to do it. He thinks silver is going to do it. And so he's here all the time at the time of prayer because he knows that these godly people will come by and help him out. This is what's going on. And so Peter is here. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I suppose if I couldn't walk and all of a sudden I had legs again, I would leap. I would jump up with joy. Skip down to verse 16. Peter says this, at all this amazed crowd that's there watching, and he has these scathing words 
to these religious leaders who were there, uh, who, who were the ones responsible for crucifying Christ. And he says in verse 16, by his name, that's the name of Jesus Christ, by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Ask this man which is more valuable. What's more valuable, the genuineness of faith or silver and gold? Silver and gold would have left him lame. Silver and gold would have helped pay for his meal for that day or maybe the next, but he would still be lame. Faith gave him legs. Ask him what's more important, faith or gold. So we see the ultimate value of faith over gold. Lastly, the the usefulness of trials in relation to faith. So we want to see the usefulness of trials. Two subheadings on this. First of all, they prove the genuineness of faith. This is what we've been hammering all afternoon. They prove the genuineness of faith. And then secondly, they improve the purity of our faith. First of all, they prove the genuineness of our faith. The furnace of affliction will reveal whether or not genuine faith exists. If genuine faith exists, then faith will remain as upright and real while in the heat of the trials as it was before. It will stay the same. That's the way it is with gold. You put gold in the fire, it may liquefy, but it's purified. It comes out as pure, pure gold. Gold loses none of its qualities in the fire. Neither does genuine faith. God puts us through a trial puts us through a difficult situation. What comes out of that is pure gold. Though I've tried, I will come forth as gold, Job says. Unfortunately, many people have deceived themselves because they live in a time of prosperity and wellness. Everything's going well. And so they, they say, I have faith in God. God provides my needs. As long as everything's going well, no problems. There are no problems. They think that they have faith, but their real trust could be in their friends, could be in their relatives, could be in the money in the bank, could be their robust health, it could be their vigorous minds, it could be their real estate holdings, any number of outward supports to hold us up. But what happens when those supports are knocked out? What happens then? What happens when you are alone and you're a widow, you have a son, you have no money, you have just enough to make a meal for yourself and your son and then die. And a preacher comes by, a prophet of God, and he says, make for me a little cake first. Now all the props are knocked out. Now your faith is being tested. Your faith is being tried. You are being put into that crucible and what's inside will be exposed. And this widow, who was praised by Jesus in the New Testament, demonstrated true, genuine faith, though an outsider. Though an outsider. What happens when you are poor and you have a great debt that you cannot pay? And you have two sons, and the only way to pay that debt would be to send your two sons into slavery and that way your debt can be paid. Again, you're a widow, 
and you have no way of helping yourself and you go to the man of God and ask for help and he says, you go to your neighbors and you collect up a bunch of pots and vessels, all that you can hold, and so she goes, and she, in faith, goes and grabs all of these vessels, and he says, now you take the one vessel of oil that you have and start pouring it into these. Now, you have to know what's going on. What's going on in her head? You want me to take this bottle that has this much oil in it and pour it into this bottle for what purpose? Why not just leave it in this bottle? There's, just, there's only this much oil. And she begins to pour, and she fills up one vessel, and she still has oil. She begins to pour, still has a vessel. I heard one man preaching on this passage. He said if she had enough faith, she'd still be pouring because she'd have more vessels. I, I'm not saying that God is going to answer all of our problems you know, with, with you know, difficulties by, with, with these kind of miraculous things. What I'm saying is that it is faith that sees us through these difficult things. It is, it is that which is exposed by these trials, that faith. Let me give you one more. <clears throat> and this ought to hit home, especially to Peter. Let's say that everything's been going well. You've been, you're, you're fed, you're, you're housed, you are walking with the Lord in discipleship, and the Lord has said, he's gonna, he says, tonight you may, you're going to betray me. You say, absolutely not, absolutely not. You bring a sword to the fight. And you say, though all men shall flee from you, I'll never, I'll never run away. And there you are. You find yourself in a courtyard, and you're warming yourself by this fireplace. And a young girl comes over and says, aren't you one of those that followed Jesus? Well, no, you've, you're mistaken. That wasn't me. You're still there. And, and three times your faith is tested. And that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. He said, tonight you'll betray me three times, but when you have repented, and that's exactly what he did, didn't he? He, repent, he went out and wept bitterly in repentance. And then, of course, Jesus comes back and recommissions him with three times saying, Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? I, th I, th I think indicating these three times of, of, of betrayal and Christ recommissioning Peter to go and preach. And he said, when you've been converted, when you've repented, you go strengthen your brothers. And I think that's exactly what's going on in First Peter. That's what he's doing. These same people who have been placed in a crucible of affliction and trial, their faith is being exposed, and he is saying, stand firm, he says, in chapter 5 and verse 12. Because that's what he failed to do that, that night of betrayal. When the visible supports are removed, when you discover if there is the invisible support of faith holding you up, then you'll be just as strong as you were before. Those visible supports may need to be removed. I hope I have time. Psalm, would you turn to Psalm 27 for me, please? I told you we'd come back to 1 Peter. We will. <laughs> uh, not quick, as quickly as I thought. First, Psalm 27 and just about a, a few more moments on this. And this is what David discovered. Psalm 27. <clears throat> I'm going to pick up verse 1. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Then he begins to list these possible assaults upon his trust 
and his faith in the Lord. Look at verse 2. When evildoers assail me to eat at my flesh, my adversaries and foes, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear, though war rise against me, yet I will not be confound, I will be confident, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. Enemies, in verse 6, all around me. Look at verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. Verse 9. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Does David have genuine faith? in the midst of all of these enemies that that besiege him. Verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Look at verse 11. More enemies. Verse 12, Adversaries, false witnesses. They breathe out violence. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That is faith. He says, I believe believe, putting his trust in God. Whether or not we are ever relieved from any physical maladies, any physical uh, problems, and, you know, know, we hear all the time, if you just had enough faith, you know, this would happen. If you had enough faith, that would happen. Please, please do not walk away thinking that I've said anything near that. That is not anything near the reality. The reality is that we are safe in in the arms of Jesus no matter what. We go through Hebrews 11 and we read of all these accounts of the, of the faithful, of the faithful. We think of Abraham. We go through all these individuals. We think of those three children in, the, in, in, in Babylon that were uh, fed to the fire, but they escaped. But what did they say? They said, King, whether or not we are able to get out of this fire or not, we're not bowing down. Whether or not God saves us or not. And he did. Daniel was saved through the fire. But you continue in Hebrews and you read all those items of faith. You get near the end. And there were some who exercised great faith. But they were not delivered from their earthly trial. They gave themselves up in death for their faith. So please don't walk away thinking that I have said anything near the, the, the heretical teaching that God is some mystical vending machine that if you just you know, pop in a coin and say a certain expression, then all will be well. That is far from what the scripture teaches. One last point, one last point, and then we'll close. Um, the testing improves the purity of our faith. Not only does it show that it's genuine, but it improves its purity. We, we all know this with gold, don't we? They, they take gold, they take silver, they, they melt it, they knock off the dross, then they take what's left, they melt it again, knock off the dross, they take what's left, melt it again. I had the privilege many, many years ago of being in South Africa and actually watching this process where they would take gold and melt it and then pour it. You had special visors that you wore. Uh, the gold was just this beautiful blue color that coming out of that cauldron when it was poured out. But it gets improved every time. And that's what happens with our faith. Every time we go through more difficulties, those things that God brings our life, no matter what they may be, they improve our faith. As the fire is revealing genuine faith, it also makes it better and more precious than it was. The graces of the Spirit come to us 
in absolute pristine purity. God grants these things. Our faith from God is absolutely pure, but those graces are placed into a heart that still has remaining sin and is now necessarily mixed with corruption and dross. We We have faith and we have unbelief. We have contentment, but we also have covetousness. We have a reliance upon God, and we also have a self-reliance. I'll take care of it myself. Those are just a few of the reasons for the fires, afflictions, and testings to purify that faith. Back to 1 Peter. Back to 1 Peter. Um, again, we may need to suffer uh, some great loss so that we can find our sufficiency in Christ, that we will see Christ in the darkness of the time. Um, I don't have a lot of time left to, to finish up this verse, but the last lines, uh, you see 1 Peter 1, 7, it says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, and here's what we want to highlight, may be found to result. This is the result. Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, this is what we would expect from tested genuineness of faith. It's to be found in praise and glory and honor. There is discussion among the commentators as to exactly what's going on with this language. Is this that when we get to heaven, we will, we will give our praise and honor and glory to Christ at his revelation? Um, or is it that we will receive praise and honor and glory? And we're a little hesitant to lean on that second one, aren't we? We're a little, a little queasy about thinking, well, we're going to receive praise, we're going to receive honor. Those are words we reserve for God. You know, when, in, in Revelation, we see these words repeated, and he, you know, all praise and honor and glory and worship to the Lamb. But it's very likely that this is language that is used as an encouragement to these dear saints that at the, res- the result of this, they will result the genuine, tested genuineness of their faith will result in words of praise to them and glory and honor. Uh, Think of it this way. Um, Genuine faith can be praised and approved by the judge who will say when these saints arrive, he will say what words? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. So their tested genuineness of their faith results in the praise of the judge for their work. Genuine faith can be honored by men and women and angels in heaven where they are brought to a place of rank. And then finally, genuine faith will be followed by eternal glory. So all of this takes place the end, the revelation of Jesus. John Calvin said these words regarding this. He said this, quote, uh, he, sa- he says this, that these words were added that to result in faith, uh, to praise and honor and glory. He says these words were added that the faithful might learn to hold on courageously until the last day. And this is what we refer to, that's the perseverance of the saints where we continue on, we work on, and who is it that, that aids us in our perseverance? Who is it that preserves us in that? It is all of God's work and not our own. Okay? He says this, that trials to us are shameful and full of reproach, 
but they become glorious in Christ. Jesus on earth in his earthly ministry received a great deal of shame. He was looked upon, despised, criticized, rebuked, mocked, scourged, and that's what it looks like. And we don't like that because that's hard. But what happens in the end? It becomes glorious. We are praised, we're honored, and we're brought to glory in Christ Jesus. Let me share just this one statement at the end and we'll close. Uh, just a line of application. Those of you who are here and you know the Lord is your Savior, you are part of the elect family of God and you know that. Um, my applicational statement to you and my encouragement to you is to remain faithful. Relish in the trials that may come. Prove They will prove the genuineness of your faith for these trials will also improve the purity of of your faith. If you are here this afternoon and you do not know Christ, my encouragement to you is do not wait for some disaster to come and to reveal the falseness of whatever faith you may proclaim. Run to Christ. Trust in Him for your salvation. Let's pray, please. Our Father, we do pray for your blessing on these simple words, nothing profound, nothing deep, uh, just a simple look at this wonderful letter of Peter. And I pray that as we, as your children, uh, are going through this life, we, we, we fight against sin every day, we fight against the onslaughts of the spiritual wickednesses in high places, we fight against the adversary of our souls. And in all of this, we thank you that in this, the genuineness of our faith is being proven and will eventually result in praise and honor and glory. We thank you for these words. Please bless them to our hearts. And may we go forth from this place not as mere hearers, but as doers of your word in Christ's name. Amen.